Welcome to Season 2 of the Mindful Literacy Podcast with your host, Dr. Jessica Bennett. Our mission is to provide one-on-one and small group literacy tutoring to children with dyslexia or who are at risk for reading failure. One of the driving forces behind creating Mindful Literacy Columbus was a social justice focus. We want to make needed education services accessible to all. The board is in the process of researching social determinants of health, such as family income, access to community-based resources, social support, language and literacy, and access to information. It is our vision to create a center where children can have access to high-quality tutoring, irrespective of family income. In our mind's eye, this center would also be a place where adults can study our written language together and where parents can find support. Listener support is paramount to how much we are able to support kids in our community. Thank you so much for your support. Here are three ways you can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. You can share this podcast and you can like and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. Pause this podcast right now and go like and follow before you forget. Our Facebook is mindful.literacy.columbus. Our Instagram is mindful.literacy.cbus. Make sure to share posts to your feed and tag your friends. You can also volunteer. There are four opportunities to volunteer with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Even if you don't live in Columbus, first, you could join the Grant Writers Guild. Writers are needed. Second, you can join our summer camp in August. Counselors are needed. Third, we need volunteers for our first annual conference for kids and grown-ups. Even coordinators are needed. This event will be held in August. Finally, you can volunteer to be a mentor and editor for Beehive Press. We especially need high school and college-age volunteers who enjoy studying English or graphic design. If you would like more information about volunteering, please send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can also email our Director of Impact at Megan, that is M-E-G-H-A-N, at mindfulliteracypractice.org. Thanks again for your support. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Mindful Literacy Podcast. On episode 12 of the Mindful Literacy Podcast, I had the joy of introducing two good friends of mine. Dr. Christina Rouse Billman supervises pre-service teachers in the Central Ohio area with several different universities, and she's a senior lecturer at OSU. She also is a tutor for Mindful Literacy Practice. Leah Groom Thomas is pursuing her doctorate degree in education. She's the director of education at the Final Third Foundation, a research project manager at Brown University, and she calls herself an applied education scientist. Listen in as the three of us talk all things reading research and pursuing graduate degrees in the field of education.
Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast, Christina Rouse-Billman and Leah Groom-Thomas. Thank you. Hi. I'm so excited because I feel like I say that at every episode. I'm so excited. <laughs> I am... Christina and I know each other from our doc program. So we were in a cohort of three and it was Eli, Jimenez, Christina, and I, and I don't know what we would have done without each other. And even to this day, we're still, we're still in each other's lives and it makes me so happy. So thank you, Christina. And still meeting each other too, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, Dr. Billman does tutoring for mindful literacy practice, and she is a volunteer on the grant writing committee. So it's fun to see her tutoring and teaching kids. And also she has such a strong bond with my own kids. So it's fun to see her and have her help me raise them. <laughs> you have good kids. They're good, good kids. <laughs> Thanks. And then Leah Groom-Thomas is in her doctorate program, and she and I know each other from the Final Third Foundation, so I feel like I've got one foot in the past and one foot in the future, and it's just really cool to introduce you guys, and I think the goal for this podcast episode is just to shoot the breeze on reading philosophy and teaching reading and evidence-based practices and data and all sorts of fun teacher scholar topics. All of our favorite things. Yeah. So um, before we started recording, Christina and Leah were oh, asking each other so many questions. And I feel like it's a great time to go ahead. Christina, I'll let you start. Introduce yourself. Talk about your teaching background, um, what you're doing now, your research interests. Tell us everything. All right. It's the question. Where do I begin? because I feel like I've just been all over the place. But I began my career as a teacher in Atlanta, in a suburb of Roswell, and taught fourth grade, fifth grade, and then moved down to third, and then second, and then back to fourth. Um, Gen Ed and Special Ed, I did a lot of inclusion, which was super fun. And I loved working with co-teachers and supporting all learners through those models. Then moved back to Columbus for the doc program. And then I was an administrator and principal for a school for kids with autism. And now I am currently working at Ohio State as a senior lecturer, and I am an adjunct at Capital University, and I also supervise student teachers in the field. So I have my hands in a lot of different things, but I have to say my favorite time of day and time of week is visiting Dr. Bennett's home when I get to tutor there for mindful literacy. And then also, um, you know, I get to work with her three girls as well. And I learned so much, you know, just being there for a couple hours a week. Okay, Leah, give us the scoop on you. All right. Well, I, very similar to what Christina said, I feel like I have had a pretty, in some ways, I guess, traditional career path, and but in also some ways, not a very traditional career. 
career path. So I uh, am a teacher by training. So I taught first grade right out of school. So I was at Ohio State. I've lived in Columbus my whole life. I taught first grade at Grace Christian School, which is a small private school in Blackwood, Ohio. And during my teaching, and I was in first grade the whole time I was there. And during that time, I got my master's at Ohio State in reading and literacy in early and middle childhood. And that prompted me to go back full-time to pursue my PhD. I've always kind of known that I was going to continue education through the PhD level, but you know, I think everyone has like different trajectories and different reasons why. And my experiences in the classroom were very much a catalyst for me going back to school. So during my time at OSU, through the past five years, gosh, it's been five years, over the past five years, I've taught courses in both our early childhood licensure programs, as well as our master's programs in reading and literacy, and also more like education focused. And then I also have done the supervising um, of pre-service teachers, which probably was my favorite thing that I did at Ohio State. I mean, I just absolutely, I absolutely loved working with our licensure student teachers. That was, that was so much fun. And then for about three years, I was a graduate research associate at Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy at OSU. And that was really um, kind of where the bulk of my research experience has been. I am now a research project manager at the Annenberg Institute at Brown University. So that has been great to be able to have a position where I'm managing a research partnership with an early learning company that provides a lot of services for Head Start kids across the nation and really focuses on, you know, closing that achievement gap and making sure that we're supporting kids and families in um, these communities across the nation. So that's kind of always been my goal is to really have a foot in research and a foot in working with teachers and the application of the research. And so I feel very fortunate to find a position that really focuses on, um, you know, quality in both of those buckets, so to speak. But as just mentioned, I'm also the director of education at Final Third Foundation. Uh, Final Third is a nonprofit organization that's based here in Columbus, Ohio, that aims to inspire and educate kids through soccer-based youth-focused programs and events. And so I focus on like our literacy education programming and ways in which we can embed those instructional opportunities in the soccer programs that we have already existing. And that's kind of how I met Jess through Mindful Literacy. And we now have a kind of partnership with Jess's organization that I'm really, really excited about. So those are kind of uh, the two main things that I'm working through right now, in addition to obviously finishing my dissertation. So it's been a long five years, but it, I'm really excited to kind of close that door at Ohio State and really be able to fully invest in, you know, helping benefit learners in the community. So what is your dissertation topic on? Oh, great question. <laughs> great question. So I am on the Research Advisory Board in Norwalk, Connecticut, um, and the reason why I am doing my dissertation uh, with kids in Norwalk, Connecticut is because there has been a lot of historical support that, you know, one of the largest reading disparities actually happens right in Norwalk. And so 
A few years ago, there was an early learning nonprofit organization that partnered with a children's museum to create a high quality early learning approach. They don't call it a program or curriculum, but more of an approach. And they focus on working with preschoolers and getting them to the point where they need to be such that they are flourishing by the time they get to kindergarten. And they focus a lot on different aspects of language instruction in the classroom that you don't typically see in, you know, what you might consider a typical pre-kindergarten classroom. So because they focus on aspects related to language and early comprehension development, that's very much where like my wheelhouse is in terms of, you know, content knowledge. So I am kind of examining the efficacy of that approach, um, both in terms of scalability. So kind of helping, you know, through my dissertation, helping the research advisory board kind of identify these active ingredients of the approach that they're currently using in the classroom and then also compare it with more traditional classroom practices in the in surrounding schools to kind of see what gains or what growing um, like what well, what learning trajectories kids in these classrooms have that are different such that we can potentially, you know, say that this is an effective approach that we need to start scaling in the future. What has been your biggest learning moment through the process of collecting research? So that's a great question. So, you know, talking about how non-traditional, my, my entire PhD, I feel, has been very non-traditional compared to the other people in my program. I had the opportunity to visit about three years ago to collect data in classrooms across the community. And because it was spring and it was like a very time sensitive thing, I actually went and and got my IRB approved and collected all this data before I even started writing a word of my dissertation. So typically, I don't know if your experience was this way, but typically, at least in my program, you have some sort of dissertation proposal that says, this is what I'm proposing to do. Um, that's kind of outlining chapters one through three, and then you get approved to collect your data. I kind of completely flip-flop that. So I think the biggest learning curve for me has been making sure that I am, you know, asking the right research questions and answering them in a way that is moving our field forward, but also kind of addressing these more of these larger like research agenda items of the research advisory board that I'm kind of reporting back to. So it's kind of been an interesting, okay, how, what parts need to go on my dissertation and what parts are kind of like auxiliary that I need, you know, I need to make sure that I'm still reporting on and doing so with quality, you know, that's kind of separate and apart from my graduation requirements. I think that's been kind of the biggest learning curve for me is like kind of how to address these two different things, if that makes sense. I feel like it was a whirlwind in our, in our you know, and I get used to the same way. <laughs> yes, the head nod. It's just a, you know, it flashes me back to when we were, when Dr. Bennett and I were in our doc program. And it's just like, you have a semester well, really you have a year, but you do your proposal, get approved, and then you have like a semester to collect data. And it's like such a whirlwind, to just get it all done, get it all written, you know? And so I don't think people understand how intense it is. Plus you're like running that research and 
trying to keep it, you know, the fidelity and just all the different parts that go into that, Pete, the research. Yeah. And like, even something as I, you know, you think that it's simple, but I, I mean, I'm using mixed methodology because that's just kind of the nature of what my work has been. But, you know, you think about like using class to code video observations and you're like, okay, also an additional like nuanced qualitative piece to this where I can be looking at the instruction happening in classrooms and how can I code and document for that and have like a legitimate justification as to why I feel it's important. So it's like making decisions about data and how you're coding and how you're going about describing it, but also being able to justify and substantiate the things that you are claiming, you know, using like well, you know, well-supported material, like research or whatever it might be. I think the dissertation process for me has been above and beyond kind of my expectation of challenge, but then also kind of just how long it's really taken me um, through this process. But it's a means to an end. So I'm thrilled that um, I wouldn't have gone back and changed a thing about it. So I'm still happy that I am where I am. When is your projected graduation date? Oh gosh, that's like, that is the question, right? Um, So I am hoping to graduate this summer. Uh, There have been a few setbacks just in terms terms of my own productivity and starting a new job and everything that goes along with that. But 2021 is my year. I'm telling you, it's happening. (laughs) So I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Amazing. I love that you said asking the right research questions. And I feel like even though you're in a a research context as a Even as a special ed teacher, you have to be asking the right questions and taking data and making meaning of these data sets on a daily basis for kids. And so I hope it's not too far removed because it's it's actually very, it's almost, I feel like you're so lucky you get to hone in on that skill set. Yeah. And I, I, that has been, I don't know about you, Christina, but like that has really been what I've struggled with the most up to this point is that. I feel like there really is such a disconnect between research and practice and there doesn't need to be right. Like one informs the other. And, you know, I, I would push back on anyone who disagrees with that. And I think that as researchers, we have learned all of these tacit skills that are applicable in a variety of settings. And one of those settings is being able to, you know, I mean, help teachers you know, kind of cre- tailor instruction to individual children, as well as more general populations based on the knowledge that we've acquired up to this point. So I feel very fortunate. I've, I've had a lot of really cool experiences that I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to have had. Well, so just on the whole research, to, we call it the research to practice gap, and it's a huge issue. Um, and it's definitely a big topic that we talk about, starting with even our undergrads at Ohio State. And, you know, I think the the issue with that is that our teachers and the access to that research and then for our teachers to understand how to read that research and then implement it into the classroom. You know, so there's a couple pieces, I think, that contribute to that gap. You know, so it's just a matter of us researchers getting it into the hands of our teachers and practitioners and then teaching them how to read that 
information and implement, which helps being an educator and a researcher because then you can bridge that gap. This episode is brought to you by Mindful Literacy Practice. Mindful Literacy Practice is the sister company to Mindful Literacy Columbus. We are a private tutoring and professional development company whose mission is to build a strong learning community that cultivates literacy and mindfulness practices with children, their families, and their teachers. Frequent and consistent tutoring is the key to fluency growth, no matter where your child is on the learning continuum, from special education to gifted education and everywhere in between. All elementary kids need to practice oral reading fluency and math facts. Mindful Literacy Practice offers affordable, high-quality, evidence-based methodology combined with precision teaching data tracking in both reading and math. For just 10 minutes a session, three to five days a week, it is not uncommon for us to see fluency rates double in the course of 10 to 12 weeks. Want to improve the speed in which your child can read and or do math facts? Mindful Literacy Fluency Programs. Improve what you measure. Practice, measure, improve, repeat. Listeners of this podcast can use code FLUENCY50 for their first registration. MindfulLiteracyPractice.org forward slash fluency forward. No, I was just going to say, you know, the research to practice gap, and I see this in like two different silos. One, Leah kind of hit on it, talking about her methodology, and she and I briefly were talking about her research methodology, and she's like, I work with big ends, and I'm like, oh, Christine and I were single subject researchers. Yeah, and I remember sitting in educational statistics class, just like trying to put basically trying to figure out how to make single subject research design work in the context of, is it statistically significant? And we're all like, well, I don't know, but it's significant for this kid and it's significant for this kid. So I don't know. It's interesting. You know, we talk about what we practice is what we're comfortable with. So I know I don't mean to speak for Christina, but I know she and I are comfortable with taking data for single subjects. But then we're we're talking about, Leah, your your different methodology. I can read it, but I would be like, I wouldn't know even where to begin to conduct the research. I totally agree. I think that, you know, if you look up an academic peer-reviewed journal, on, you know, practices to promote print knowledge with three to five-year-olds, you can find a ton, a ton of publications. But as a practitioner, A, you're not likely to look in those journals to begin with. And B, if you do happen to, you know, stumble upon that information, it's not going to be digestible because that's not what your background is in. You know, I think that there is so much to be said for practitioner oriented dissemination pieces that, you know, may highlight certain aspects of research, but, you know, are explaining them and describing them in a way that's digestible for somebody who's outside of your field. You know, I also feel like a PhD is like, I always tell my husband, a PhD, you have like the umbrella of knowledge and your PhD is like 
one tiny facet of that, right? Like, you know, a lot about like one thing. And I think that we need to take a step back and kind of think about the skills that we've acquired through a PhD program and how we can apply those in a way such that we are effectively helping teachers improve their practice and, you know, achieve learner outcomes. Because our goal at the end of the day is to improve learning for all children, right? So one of the other things I was really looking forward to talking about was the fact that Christine and I come from a behavioral approach to reading. And I'll let you talk a little bit about that um, and what that actually means. And then I want to hear, Leah, your response to that. And I think it's going to be interesting when we were in the program, you know, we're working under this philosophy, but I think we both over time, it's very still near to our hearts, but I, watching each other teach, I know we're kind of more uh, integrating all of the things that are effective for teaching. It's so true. So Christina, tell us about what does it mean to have a behavioral approach to teaching reading? I know this is one of your passions. Well, so I have to begin by saying I still believe myself to be a hybrid. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean that, you know, I come from a very constructivist background. So all my teacher training is in that constructivist, you know, approach. But then when I moved over into this ABA umbrella with my doc program, I think, you know, Dr. Bennett can even say this completely blew our brains away, you know, like as far as just, oh my gosh, this was so enlightening for us. But at the same time, there were a lot of things that were very similar to our practice in the classroom, you know? So when we talk about having like the constructivist theory, the behaviorist, you know, behavioral theories and all those, there's a lot of overlap. And and then it's a matter of, you know, terming and that terminology, uh, we're just using different terminology for basically the same strategies and and methods. But now, you know, finishing with the doc program, working in a school for kids with autism that was very, you know, based in behavioral methods, I 100% will not go back, you know, to anything else and always stick to that behavioral approach. And so, you know, it goes along with when you talk about reading, ensuring that you're using explicit methods you know, to teach reading, introducing those skills systematically and ensuring that your students are getting that model and then they're getting that guided practice with immediate feedback. And then finally being able to have that independent practice so that they can reach their, you know, reach mastery. You know, when we talk about reading, there's so many, there's that whole language theory and then there's the phonics-based right theory and then how we go back and forth between those two and we can argue all day about them but ultimately in the behavioral research you know we find that that phonics based instruction is the most effective practice and methodology to ensure that our students are learning to read and so that's kind of where i go when i talk about you know the behavioral approach we have to make sure that we're teaching, you know, that phonics-based instruction, that it is explicitly taught, systematically introduced, and that our students get that guided and independent practice. I don't disagree with anything that you just said. I think that I would even push that beyond 
phonics-based instruction that all of our instruction needs to be systematically introduced such that it's at the time and place that it's going to be most effective and useful for the individual child. And I think so much of that gets lost, unfortunately, when you are in the world of of dealing with big ends, as Jess mentioned. And I, quite frankly, come from a completely different worldview just because of my program um, and my training. So for me, I would consider myself an applied education scientist that's dedicated to bridging research on child development and practice. So if you think of multidisciplinary, (laughs) a lot of syllables, field of social science, you're aiming to integrate basic science and developmental theory with applied sciences on what I like to call the three P's. So education practices, policies, and programs. And it's at a way, it's at a way higher level. And, you know, inherently you're going to lose some of the nuances with that, right? So I'm trained by a developmental psychologist. So I come from a much more positivist epistemological standpoint you know, which is just to say that knowledge is tied to observational forms of verification and methodologically founded through scientific experiment and the scientific process. However, with that being said, I think there are too many people who take on this perspective that also believe that if something can't be observed or measured quantitatively, it's not of importance. And I don't agree with that at all. I think There are so many nuances that can't be ignored, nor honestly explained by numbers alone. And especially in the field of education, you know, there are so many developmental precursors that we know exist with children as they matriculate through school. But, you know, what I what I like to say is there's no true counterfactual in social science, right? There's always at least a small percentage of a chance that there's an alternate explanation to why a program or intervention did or didn't work. And to be able to like really hone in on those differences and those nuances, there's such a place for exactly what you're talking about. This behavioral theory mindset that we know that there are things that we need to be doing with our instruction. You know, and again, I would push that it was, it's even more, yes, phonics-based instruction we know is effective, but we also know that there are effective ways to introduce other things as well, you know, that I don't, that I don't think we practice on as much, especially in an early childhood setting, like vocabulary instruction and and developing oral language for one. I think that I'm a hybrid too. I think that I come from a, you know, kind of the opposite, but I'm moving towards the middle where I recognize that there's value in both of those buckets, so to speak. And, you know, I do have to like kind of piggyback off of the fact that you're talking about like the precursors, you know, and what we look at as behavior analysts, we look at the environment, where the students are coming from, what is their behavioral history? You know, so you think about too, that an intervention may not work for a child because, you know, of their behavioral history, it may not be reinforcing enough or, you know, what do we know about their home life? What do we know about their previous experience with reading and with encountering literature and, you know, music, song, whatever that promotes that literacy? 
you know, one of my favorite books that I will always remember from the doc program is The Meaningful Differences by Hart and Risley. They evaluated over two and a half years. I don't, are you familiar with it, Leah? Mm-hmm. The, the study, the longitudinal study done. And they looked at 42 families across a variety of socioeconomic levels. They termed these levels as, what did they term them as? Professional income or like middle income. So working class and then welfare. And it was really interesting because evaluated how much language our babies were getting in those various socioeconomic status levels and what a difference even those environments make when they enter kindergarten and how much language, you know, a child has from professional, you know, realm versus the welfare or the low socioeconomic realm. You know, so when you talk about like those precursors, those play a huge part you know, so as a behavior analyst, we look at the environment and that is a huge piece as to you know, what we're working with and what we need to pay attention to when we're implementing that, you know, systematic explicit instruction for all subject areas, like you said. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think one one ecological model that we, I mean, we can probably, uh, you know, agree on is Bronfenbrenner's model of ecological support. So, you know, that a person's development at any age is going to be influenced by their surrounding environment at various systematic levels, right? So, you know, you're not just looking at the individual person, you're looking at the communities in which they, you know, are afforded learning experiences. And that could be classroom structure, that could be all the way to community and, you know, the the neighborhood that kids live in. There are just so many different experiences that learners bring to the table, regardless of their background or, you know, what their needs are. And I think that to not capitalize on those experiences, even if they're different from everyone is really, you know, it's a disadvantage to the child, honestly. I mean, as teachers, I'm telling, I think teaching is the most challenging profession ever. I don't think teachers get enough credit. And I, you know, one of my goals is to figure out ways that I can help teachers feel supported in ways that doesn't make them feel like I'm adding to their plate, but rather enhancing the already wonderful work and practices they're implementing. I love this conversation. So I have a few questions and either of you can answer these, but Let's suppose I am a in a teacher prep program or, you know, I'm in the first five years of teaching and I'm hearing you speak and I'm like, well, I I wanna I wanna bridge the research to practice gap. I wanna improve my practice. What would be your advice to teachers who are geeking out on this like we are? Great question. I guess I'm thinking like so. And I don't know if this is the best resource, but the What Works Clearinghouse, with What Works Clearinghouse, I think where I would start, you know, and that's what I use with my pre-service teachers, um, because what it does is it takes the research, it evaluates the research for you, and then it tells you, you know, what exactly that strategy or method is for teaching um, what it's targeting, what the age range is, and then how effective they found that research to be 
you know, so I do think that's probably where I would have them go first, because I do think that reading research in itself is like a whole nother skill. And you have to really learn how to read that research and understand what they're telling you. So the way that What Works Clearinghouse sets things up is that they do it all for you. And so then you can go on there by subject area and then by age range. And then if you're looking for something in particular, you know, to refine, or if you're having a struggling student, maybe having trouble with comprehension, you know, then you can go into like that area on What Works Clearinghouse and then see all the different kinds of strategies for that comprehension piece. But I think that's where I would start. So a teacher has like a problem. I don't call it a problem, but a sticking point, right? It's that moment when you're working with a kid or a class and you're like, I don't really know what to do next. What I'm doing isn't working. Now what do I do? So you go and you'd search in whatever. So if it's reading comprehension strategies or something. Yep. Are there any uh, words of caution to some of the, I remember like going on there maybe this time last year and I kind of had a, a trained eye, but do you, are there any words of caution that you found in using it? What works clearinghouse? I, yeah, I would say with any, any information that you're taking in, you always have to think critically about where, you know, that information is coming from, you know, is it vetted? What is that resource per se, as far as who is running the research? But you always, whatever kind of, you know, literature information you consume, you need to think critically about, you know, that information and then how it will be incorporated into your own practice. And that could be a whole nother podcast, right? How you can look at research. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think What Works Clearinghouse is an excellent resource. And something that I really do like is they have different categories. I can't think of the actual way that they term them, but they have different categories for like standard, like like criteria that different studies have like criteria that they have met. So let's say like they meet without reservation. That means that it's like gold standard, good to go. Like this is something that we know is effective that you can use and differentiate as needed. If it's like, you know, reservation, then it's, you know, you do need to have a more turn, you know, have a more critical eye to it. But me being, you know, in my field, I very much, I am, I take on the guilty until proven innocent with all the research that I read. So I try to keep an open mind, but I am very, very critical. You know, if there are certain validity issues that I don't think are addressed well enough or mentioned in the limitations, that's something you know, that I necessarily don't think that I would recommend uh, for a teacher. But kind of piggybacking off the What Works Clearinghouse, I think that that is probably the best starting point for educators. And I also kind of from there, what I would challenge pre-service teachers or in-service teachers really is to reach out to the curriculum director that you have or the person that you have that is kind of like, should be the go-to for this sort of information and take your specific questions to them. If you've done your research, bring that research and also try So, and that way you have another person that you can kind of try to fill those gaps with that may be more knowledgeable about the research base or evidence base that exists on a particular practice. Um, or, you know, let's say, for example, there's a, a spot in 
know, in a child's learning, you're like, I just don't know how to fill this gap. But you know that there are a few practices that may help. You're just not sure which is the most effective. I would say do your research, go to a meeting prepared and meet with somebody that you know, a curriculum director was just someone that I came up with. I think that you have various positions within schools and districts that, you know, are available resources to teachers. But I would probably be my next suggestion after what works clearinghouse, but definitely that first. I think that's a great suggestion because I think if you this vocation adds a vocation and not a job, it's like part of it becomes part of you. And you're constantly learning as you're teaching. And so I, you know, writing down those research questions you have, which maybe they're not research questions. Maybe they are just, what are the problems? What are the sticking points? My friend, Melanie, used to call them the sticky wickets. You know, what are you trying to grow in your student? And what are you, what skill set are you trying to grow in yourself? Put that down as a question and you bring in one or two or three or more other people in your career and all of a sudden now you've got a community of scholars and whether or not you're you know an official researcher you are a scholar for your students and I think that is just the the biggest service you can do for the kids you are teaching absolutely Make sure to save the day for two fun events in 2021 in partnership with the Final Third Foundation Mindful Literacy Columbus presents 2021 Summer Writing Camp. Kids entering third to seventh grade will have the opportunity to be a part of this investive writing camp. Save the date for this week of August 8th. Email Megan at MindfulLiteracyPractice.org for more information, make sure to mention that you heard about this camp from the podcast and enter a drawing to win 50% of the camp tuition. First Annual Mindful Literacy Columbus Conference for Kids and Their Grown-Ups. After this conclusion of the writing camp, we will hold a community celebration. This will include kids showcasing their work, art, music, yoga, food, and high quality professional presentations for both teachers and parents. Teachers will have the opportunity to learn CEUs. The conference, which will be held on Saturday, August 15th, 2021, will serve as a fundraiser for a nonprofit organization. We will also currently accepting presentation proposals from teachers and professionals in the community. Please email Stacey, S-T-A-C-E-Y, at Stacey at MindfulLiteracyPractice.org. To receive more information about the conference and or the submit of a presentation proposal. Go ahead, Leah. Oh, I was just going to say one quick anecdote about that. I think there's so much to be said for teachers not always feeling like they have to be the most knowledgeable other in every single situation. I've done a lot of interviews with early childhood teachers, and I I can't necessarily generalize this to teachers K-12, but at one teacher in particular was talking about how her students always, they they were most engaged during science. But science was when they asked the most questions, probably because they were the most engaged. 
but science content was what the teacher was least comfortable with. And so she was always reluctant to engage in those learning conversations because she herself did not feel like she was the most knowledgeable other. And, you know, to me, I'm like, I totally understand that, but it's also so sad to me because having this, like having a learning environment where you're co-constructing learning together is not only teaching your students that you can be agents of your own learning, but you can also use that as a moment to teach them the learning process itself, right? And that it's okay to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. Let's see if we can figure it out together. I think there's so much to be said for that. And I think teachers don't give themselves enough credit and feel like that they always have to be the more knowledgeable other. And it's in fact, very much okay to not be in every situation. And that is exactly why I loved co-teaching is because you know your strengths, you know your weaknesses. And then with your co-partner, they have their strengths and weaknesses. And so then you kind of work around, all right, this is what you're strong in. Let's have you do this. And then I'm strong in this. Let's do this. And so it's so nice to have that collaboration with your, you know, other, with the other professionals in the, in the field. So I think you're so right, Leah, about the fact that, you know, connect and, and bring together that, you know, what Dr. Bennett always says, like the teacher tribe, you know, and really bring in other people that you work with to like explore and to look at that research together and, you know, implement things into your practice together. And then you can, you know, really, I guess, problem solve if there are issues or, you know, really work as a team to, to get that research into your classroom. Yeah. I totally agree. I think one of the most frustrating things after going back into the classroom after the doc program was that I knew that there were people out there researching the exact issues and problems that we were facing on the ground. But I knew that it was going to take two to three years before they finished the research and then probably another one to two years before that research was published. And then I don't know if I have access to it. Now we're talking about a study that was done six years ago. You know what I mean? And so I always felt like it to give teachers the the creative and the intellectual license, the creative and intellectual license to be an active researcher in your classroom. Do what works. What works clearing house? What's working today? Not working today? Change. Right. I mean, that was that was it's interesting you bring that up because that was probably a huge shift in my mentality during I went to one of the seminal research conferences in our field. I was there and it was wild to see these. I'd read so many studies by these authors and I knew who these researchers were because they were so well-known and I could actually put a face with their name. And then there was one presentation and it was phenomenal, but it was on research that's currently being implemented in classrooms that started 15 years ago. And to me, I was like, I can't justify a career in that. And I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with taking a tenure track faculty position. We need to have those positions. Those positions have to exist. But for me, I have to see the application of the work I'm doing. There's got to be a quicker turnover um, in order for me to actually feel like I'm making a large impact. Um, And that's ultimately 
what has kind of you know shifted my perspective um, into taking a more non-traditional career route than what I had originally anticipated. But yeah, I mean, there's gotta be gotta be a bridge, and it's gotta be a quicker turnaround than you know even five to ten years. I totally agree. Yeah, I think Christina had taken um, her Orton Gillingham courses before she started the doc program. I remember. And I didn't even know what it was at the time. And then we started our study in the reading clinic. And it's like, she's like, this is the same. It's the same as Orton Gillingham. Like, okay. So then I went, I went through the doc program first, was teaching in the reading clinic first, and then later went to take OD class. I'm like, oh, this is the same philosophical umbrella I would say oh it's like it's like getting on a different airline you still are are flying on the principles of physics and gravity but someone's on southwest and someone else is on delta right right and so one of the things that we look at in our practice in teaching kids who have reading disabilities is absolutely using everything we know about what she was talking about the explicit systematic um, direct sequence instruction, which is what Orton Gillingham is, and, but also, but also what Leo is talking about in that who's your learner? What do they bring to the table? Hook them into oh, they like science, great. Hook them in, and then just in my own study in the last two years, looking at linguistics and structured word inquiry, but kind of bridging these two things together, and what we're finding is, and those of us who are have Orton Gillingham training, but also doing structured word inquiry and bringing in the science of linguistics, there isn't necessarily, there hasn't been this big an efficacy study done on it. But collectively of people from all over the world who sort of started honing in on their skills and the way that they approach language and, and written language and ask questions with their students and don't know the answer, sort of like, Okay, well, we're we're moving the needle. We're not really sure um, what the needle is, except for that kids like to read and write better. They're becoming better spellers. They're able to compose, you know, their own paragraphs. But it's sort of like it's really hard when you're in the field and you know something is working, and someone's like, "Well, what's the research in it? What's the impact?" You know, like the smile on the kid and their family's face for one. That's where I'm going to start. You know, the fact that they want to come to the table. So there's got to be something to the whole child approach that we all, I know we all use, in addition to the empirically based research that we've all conducted. So it's been super fun to talk to you. I feel like I have more questions. Also, so I'm wondering what your advice would be to teachers who feel like they want to get their master's degree. I've also met a lot of people who are like, oh, I've always wanted to get my PhD, but I don't know. I just wonder what your individual advice would be to people who want to further their education in this field. Yeah, I mean, I would say first and foremost to think long and hard about what your end goal is. I think that there are a variety of different programs, even departmental differences. I mean, just the differences in discipline from, you know, the program that the two of you were in compared to the one I'm in. And I'm assuming you were still in the Department of Teaching and Learning, correct? At OSU? You said you're in a completely different department even. 
So that goes to show you how different they can be. And so, you know, for me, a program part-time was not an option. My advisor either, I mean, you are either full-time or, you know, it's, it's not an option. So, you know, that's something to consider. Is it something you want to do part-time? Is it something you want to do full-time? And I also, I've heard a lot of people, teachers especially say, I really want to get my PhD. And I always ask why? And the response more often than not is, well, it's just the next thing to do. It's like kind of the next step and I want to do it. And I push back on that because I don't feel like that is an adequate reason to go back and, you know, really, really devote yourself for the next few years to getting this, you know, terminal degree. So, you know, I would say just think really hard and take the time to process what your goal is and what it is that you want to learn and have an idea of that before you start, because ultimately you're going to have to make that decision at some point and it'll help you if you have, you know, maybe not like one specific idea, but a couple of different areas that you're interested in. I would say just to really think about your reasons for wanting to go back. I mean, obviously I support it, but you know, you just, you want to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And I do, I say, you know, at least at the master's level with my pre-service teachers, because they always say, well, you know, once I graduate, I want to teach and go get my master's and then eventually PhD. But I always tell them, get a couple years of experience in the classroom first, and then you can think about getting your master's. Because I do honestly believe that going from like your undergrad to your master's degree is somewhat of a disservice because you really need that experience in the classroom to really understand what you're then learning in your master's program and then how you can apply that to your own practice in the classroom. So you really need that background. You really need that experience in the field before really moving on to your master's program. But I absolutely say definitely go and get your master's, you know, because I do believe that that will further, you know, your expertise in the field. But Leah, I 100% agree with you when it comes to the, a doc program to really know what your end goal is, because it's so easy to get lost in just saying that you want to do a PhD program because you want to get a PhD, right? Know what you want to do at the end. With Yeah. Know your why. Mm-hmm. Know your why. And I wish that Kirst, because I would say that what her response was priority to what I said. So Absolutely. Like there is nothing, there is nothing that compares to the hands-on real world experience that you will get teaching in a classroom. There is no class course, no syllabus, no experience at the university level that will compare to getting that classroom experience 100%. Awesome advice. I, you know, I was thinking on Leah's three P's, policy, practice, What's the other one? Programs. I also just want to touch on the fact that what we talked about the research to practice gap. I have always felt like there's a policy to practice gap. What do you guys think about that? That's a Leah question for sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think that of those three things, one informs the other. I think that it is you know, kind of not necessarily like a mutually exclusive, you know, one only benefits policy, one only benefits practice or programs. But I completely agree with you. I think that in order for there to be systemic changes, 
you know, we have to constantly be improving and informing our policy, especially in a social science field such as education. But, you know, in order for that to happen, you have to have the quality research that can support the changes and justify the changes that need to be made. And ultimately, we're not seeing that happen quick enough, you know, to fill these gaps in the way that our learners and communities need. And so that's actually one reason I took the position that I did at Brown, because Annenberg has been very, I mean, they are an educational policy institute. Everyone that I work with has, I mean, they have their PhD in educational policy or economics or something related. I am the only one there that is in early childhood and comes from a teaching background focusing on something that isn't directly influencing policy. So that was part of my reason for wanting to go there was because I feel like there are things that I need to learn to help get to, to help me get to the point where my research is not only being turned directly into practice, but I'm doing it at the level and at the, you know, at the rigor that I need to in order for it to be influencing policy. So I agree. I think that there definitely is a disconnect and I don't know really what the answer is in terms of helping bridge that gap. But ultimately, in order for us to see the systemic change at the level that we need to for all learners, there has to be changes made policy. And, you know, I think that that we can get into a conversation about our government um, and, you know, political administration and things like that and all the influence that that or the role that that plays in educational policy. Uh, but that, I mean, we could be here for days talking about the politics of all of it. So, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that there's a huge gap. And I think, you know, you know, my hope is that that's going to be my lifelong endeavor, right? Like learning is a lifelong process and continuing to kind of better our learning communities. It's, you know, it's ultimately going to be working in all three of those, all three of those buckets of peas that I was talking about. Okay. So one of the things I want to end on is, and I think it's really important to keep in mind as a teacher that there are policies that affect the research that's being done, that affect the practices we have, that affect the programs that our schools adopt. And there's some changes coming around real quick here in the next couple of months based on policy changes, which is great. It's been my observation that when these policy changes happen, and I think a lot of times for good reason, they always end up failing because of the implementation where there's not enough money, there's not enough support to train people. With that being said, I do want to just go back. I think one of the highlights of this conversation has been empowering teachers to do uh, what they feel is right, not only cerebrally, you know, like reading the research, trying it, failing, trying it again, getting together with like-minded teachers, but also what feels right in their hearts. So I just want to make sure everyone feels empowered to do that and find your people. Like I was, I'm just so grateful and honored that the three of us took time to do this podcast and have people hear your voices. So thank you so much. I just want to also mention the fact that Leah is part of the Final Third Foundation. She and I are putting on a summer camp this summer in the Columbus area. So make sure to check out registration. It's happening 
the third week in July. And both Dr. Bellman and Leah are tutors in the area. So send me an email or where can our listeners find you if they want to get more guidance in their teaching practice or if their parents looking for tutors. Thank you for the plug. You can find me at the Final Third website. It's just finalthirdfoundation.org. I'm typing it in right now. And under About Us, you'll see um, a link to Teams and you can find my information there. So uh, feel free to email me. My email is leah, L-E-I-A-H at finalthirdfoundation.org. Be happy to you know discuss any and everything education related. You can also find me, Leah Groom Thomas on LinkedIn on Facebook, feel free to direct message me or, you know, we can connect some other way as well. But I'd be happy to talk about different tutoring services. And I think that what I would probably do at this point is direct you to mindful literacy. But in terms of like anything that you have, I also do consulting as well. If there are like specific needs that your company has, or you individually have, or that your school needs. And, you know, it can be anything from, you know, advancing and helping your, you know, scale your curriculum to, you know, kind of differentiating and individualizing your instruction. Uh, I'd be happy, you know, to help empower teachers and learners. That's kind of my thing. Yeah. And then they can find, you know, if people are wanting to know more about um, pre-service training for teachers, early literacy, reading instruction. I love talking about all of that stuff. And anyone can find me at Dr. Rouse Billman at mindfulliteracypractice.org. You can email me there and I would be happy to chat and connect and support whatever you need. If you're a practicing teacher, that's always my favorite to support our teacher in the field. Excellent. Thank you ladies so much. I appreciate your time and your brain power. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Mindful Literacy Podcast. May you be inspired, energized, and share this love with those in your care. We are also grateful to have you as a part of our community. If you are enjoying the content in this podcast, please share this with your friends and colleagues. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please also take a moment to connect with us on Facebook mindful.literacy.columbus and on Instagram, mindful.literacy.cbus. We want to hear from you. What topics do you want to uncover next? Who is doing these amazing things on the field of education that we should be talking about in season three? Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace. Before we wrap things up, we want to mention one more way from anywhere in the world that you and your students can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. For just $25 a month, you can become a patron member of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Yes, that's right. For less than the cost of a latte a week, you will become a champion for child literacy and you have the opportunity to give directly back to kids in two ways. First, dues enable staff to grant write, fundraise, and build organizational awareness. 
Second, patron members are invited to contribute monthly to our publishing house, Beehive Press. The books that your students will curate will then be sold to generate even more scholarship money for your students. Beehive Press is an imprint of mindful literacy loans. Here is what patron members will get for their $25 per month. Submit one book by kids or kids for Beehive Press per month. Receive video lesson plans on how to engage kids in the writing process and PDF graphic organizers to help with the pre-writing process. Includes help with book layout, one-to-one -one final editing session, marketing, sales, and logistics of the book. Receive the proof of the book for free. Includes copyright and ISBN number. Each published book that is sold gives back to MLC. 50% goes to scholarships, 50% goes to authors. To become a patron member, go to mindfulliteracypractice.org slash donate.